Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode 42. My name is Dwayne Osterland and I'm your host and I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or someone you know is struggling with any of life's difficulties, please reach out to us and see if we can help. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. So on today's episode, I have a returning guest. Her name is Adina Silvestri, and she is going to talk about the interaction between eating disorders and addiction and how we have to work with both in order for anyone to get some long-term recovery. I think we have a great conversation about it, and it's very insightful. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Before we start, once again, if you're enjoying The Addicted Mind, please go to iTunes and rate and review us. That really does help get the word out and get this information out to more people. So I really appreciate it for the people who have done that. Thank you very much. Okay, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Addicted Mind. My guest today is Adina Silvestri, and it's so great to have you back, Adina. It's awesome to hear uh, from you again. And we were kind of talking earlier, just a little while ago, about the topic that we're going to talk about today, and that's kind of the combination of eating disorders and addiction treatment. So I'm great you're coming on because I think this is an issue that a lot of people struggle with. And you want to reintroduce yourself? Sure. Uh, Adina Silvestri, and um, I own a private practice in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and I specialize in working with women with eating disorders and substance abuse, recover from shame to find hope and healing. 
Awesome. And that's why we're, we're having you on the podcast. Um, cause I think this is such an issue that so many people who struggle with addiction deal with is what I see a lot of times is after they kind of deal with maybe the substance issue or the direct, sometimes like with sex addiction or porn addiction, food becomes a problem for a lot of people. And, and that, that kind of has its own issues. So I thought we can kind of talk about how they interact together and and how uh, people deal with it and what you see and and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. So this this topic is is something that I really struggle with in the practice because individuals that come to see me that have these two disorders, well, number one, individuals that suffer with addiction are really poor at self-reporting, right? That just goes with the territory. And so when they come with this history, it's just, it's just frightening because the mortality rate when these two are combined is just staggeringly high. Which is kind of shocking. And a lot of people don't, I don't think they realize like how actually dangerous eating disorders are for people and how this combo kind of really creates the, the, the environment for real harm. Right. So I see women that are in their 20s going to college. And then I also see women midlife. So I'm not sure what age you want to focus on today, but maybe just a quick overview. It it just doesn't start in, in young people. It's not a young person's disease, eating disorders. And so, or not only a young person's disease. And so like when these women go to college, you know, and they've had an eating disorder in the past and they're exposed to this drinking, they start to use drinking as like this vehicle to purge. How does that look? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, it's something that they use when they attempt to stop restricting. And so they look for other avenues to kind of numb out. And so that's kind of what I've noticed uh, in the practice. Okay, so can you kind of explain for our listeners, you know, when we, we talk about eating disorders, there's kind of uh, categories of eating disorders. Can we kind of go through them so that people kind of know what we're talking about when they talk about restriction or binging or anything like that? Yeah, so the eating disorders are anorexia nervosa, and that's characterized by this malnutrition and weight loss. Um, significant malnutrition and weight loss and fear of weight gain. Um, and there's also some some body disturbance there. Then we have the bulimia nervosa, and that doesn't seem to have the same malnutrition and weight loss. Um, it's more binging, purging, but again, negatively evaluating their body shape and weight. And then the binge eating, and that's um, the disordered eating, which you have multiple episodes of this uncontrolled eating within like a discrete period of time. Right. And some of these are not, I think with like eating disorders, what I see is anorexia when some, when someone is pretty severely anorexic, you can, you can see it, but with like um, binge eating or bulimia, sometimes you, you can't just see it on, on the outside. If that makes sense, it's, it's, it can be hard to see actually. Yeah, definitely. And that kind of leads back to what you were saying, that self-reporting that like um, sometimes clients are so used to living this way, they don't, or they have too much shame about it. They just don't say anything. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I've had individuals come in here that have said that they've been struggling in silence for 20 plus years and they come to my office or they'll come to my eating disorder group. And that's the first time they've said it out loud to themselves, let alone to others that they're struggling, which is really scary. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think there's so much shame about it and people feel so out of control and, and they keep that just hidden away. Yeah. And so, you know, if they do present with both an eating disorder and a past substance abuse or vice versa, and you're only treating one and not the other, that actually exacerbates the symptoms. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. That's, can you kind of explain that? So someone comes in and, and the substance abuse is pretty obvious, you know, I mean, maybe they're drinking too much so people can see them, see that they're drunk, they can kind of see it, but this eating disorder is still kind of hidden. And if they're not dealing with both, then uh, it makes the problem worse. Yeah. And so when I look at the, the literature, there, you know, there's definitely a lack of literature regarding how to treat these disorders, which is also kind of scary. But definitely you want to treat both simultaneously because the camps are very different. You know, if you look at substance abuse it's all about the narrative and there's usually food involved. Right. <laughs> um, sh- lots of sugar. Caffeine, um, sugar. Yeah, yeah, and caffeine. In the eating disorder camp, it's very heavy on literature and we're going to use evidence-based treatments and they freak out when they see food and caffeine is also another stimulant that they can use to lose weight. and so. Yeah, they don't they don't work nicely together <laughs> is what we're seeing in right. the treatment centers. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, you know. I mean, we kind of get into our niche area of practice and we get very good at that. But what I, I also find that too is when I'm working with individuals who are struggling with addiction, especially like sex or porn addiction or behavior addiction, these other problematic behaviors or addictions kind of come in as well. So, I mean, I work with a lot of clients and they're doing really well with the compulsive sexual behavior, but all of a sudden now they're binging on ice cream. They're, they're stopping by the, the fast food place and, and ordering $30 worth of uh, Taco Bell or something for themselves. And they feel awful about that. And they're, you know, it's kind of, Kind of like here, here they are doing really well over here, and all of a sudden, this other behavior comes in to to uh, change how they feel as well. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's just so it's so scary, you know, because you think, okay, yeah, I have this person; they're under control. They're you what you think everything is great with the eating, and then their labs come back, and it's like, okay, well, <laughs> what's happening here? Why why are we going back to the old habits of binge binge drinking? It just wasn't, it's not even on my radar. Now it is. (laughs) But in the past, that was a mistake that I would make. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think when you're kind of, you can get focused on one area of helping them. And like you said earlier, clients don't always self-report, hey, I'm also struggling with this, but I feel so much shame about it. I'm not going to tell you that I just got back from the fast food place and once again, ate eat this much food. They, they don't want to say that. I mean, that becomes really hard for them to uh, talk about. Definitely. And I think it kind of comes down to, if we're going to focus on one, what which one is the greatest need to stabilize medically and psychiatrically? 
to get us stable. But yeah, definitely. You have to look at that, especially with eating disorders too, because of the high risk and the high mortality. I mean, it is kind of really, really, really scary when you yes. have clients that are seriously eating disordered. I mean, and it's it's very, very uh, hard for them and, and medically uh, really important that they get good help. For sure. So I have a question. What what about when we look at this? Because one of the things that I see a lot with behavior, you know, working in with behavior addictions, especially around sex and porn addiction, is I get a lot of clients that come in and they have they have like ten years of sobriety from alcohol or drugs or something like this, but like this behavior is still something. Finally, they come in and they go, "Okay, I got to get help about this as well because I am sober, I'm clean from drugs, I'm, I'm not drinking." But this one area is really impacting me, and I see that a lot. And um, and then I also see a lot of that with like food. So I, I'm just kind of wondering what's going on there. Why, why are people kind of struggling with this? They get the substance abuse, and then they move to food. Mm. What's happening? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and the, there's so many different models out there that you can subscribe to. You know, I think it just sort of depends on the person and the complex needs that they have at that time. But yeah, if if you're not getting to the root of the problem, which is kind of like, you know, the acceptance and commitment model, which is something that I'm using more and more, um, it's hard. You know, these things are just going to continue to come up in, in different ways, whether it's sex or, you know, eating or whatever. Right. And they, and they continue to like, uh, continue to struggle. And yeah, I agree with you. It's kind of like understanding that deeper underlying, whatever there, there's that deep underlying discomfort. And sometimes I think that discomfort doesn't necessarily even have a name that you can give it, if that makes sense. But they know that, you know, food or sex takes that discomfort away. And um, they're able to, you know, they kind of use that as a tool to overcome that feeling, change, shift that feeling. And I definitely see that. It can be hard to find help clients uh, identify that emotion and then change it at the same time. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like somebody standing in the battlefield ready to fight a war. And the war is just not going well, but the person keeps fighting harder and harder, therapy after therapy. You know, losing is not an option, but... Right. Unless the war is won, the person fighting just keeps thinking like this life is going to not be worth living, you know, until we figure this out. But maybe it's not that they need to be in war. You know, maybe it's just a shift of perception that needs to happen and getting at the root causes there. Yeah. So when when you have uh, clients come in, how do you help them? With these, with this interaction of of addiction and eating disorders, right? When they come in, we do some assessments, um, figure out what's going on. If they've worked with treatment teams in the past, and many of them have, um, I also get them on board, or we look for other people to fill in the gaps. So, like for example, if someone comes in with an eating disorder, and maybe they've never received treatment before. Then we look at how we're going to plug those holes in. Then we, you know, we look at getting a dietitian, and we look at finding somebody that specializes in addiction medicine. And I just very much work with the team because there's always more than one head is definitely better than we all have something that we can contribute um, in that way. 
And so it's very, it's less isolating for one. And it's also just better with, with treatment. It's just better. Yeah, no, I, I, one of the things, I mean, I, I can, I totally agree with that because a lot of times having a team there really helps the client get the specific help that they need. And, and I would imagine with eating disorders, I mean, you need to bring in medical staff. They need to be, they need to be looked at medically because that can be a large issue. So having that team around them to kind of figure out what works for them, I think is really important. Yeah. So when a client comes in and they're dealing with all of this, maybe they they say, okay, yeah, I have this other problem. I'm binging on uh, food or I, you know, I'm eating uncontrollably. It feels out of control. How do you kind of help them in that moment? Mm-hmm. So again, I've been using a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy. Mindfulness really seems to help as well. You know, anything that can kind of get them to deal with those uncomfortable feelings and to also know that these feelings are normal for, for every, for everyday life, obviously things that catastrophic wars or things of that nature, but that I'm not going to see those individuals on, on a daily basis, but. So kind of normalizing their feelings. Normalizing. Yeah. And providing them with support. You know, I think that the eating disorder group that I have is also really helpful because if I can't, if they don't feel like I can relate to what they're going through, they definitely know that these women can relate to what they are going through. And there's so much comfort there. Um, and it takes, it takes power and it takes, it takes courage to become vulnerable in that way. Right. So going to a group and, and getting that, that support from peers who understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Same with 12 step or mutual help groups. Yeah, definitely. I, I find that's one of the, the, for a lot of the, the clients that come to uh, my agency, uh, the groups tend to be something that they really, once they get comfortable yeah. after maybe the first month or two, yeah, the groups become a powerful resource for them to kind of work on their shame, build relationships that maybe they, real relationships that they have never been able to have before. And it seems incredibly powerful for them to, yeah, be able to kind of go open up to other people who know exactly what they're going through and feel a lot of the same feelings and understand and then share their common successes and failures in trying to make those changes. Like, well, this worked for me, but that didn't work. And I feel better when this happens. And, you know, or understanding when they do kind of slip back into the old behavior, having people are going to lift them up mm-hmm. and say, hey, come come on back. It's okay. Don't let don't let the shame keep you out of here. Yeah, you know, keep keep talking about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it still blows my mind when they show up and they're just so honest and with strangers, which you know eventually become friends. But in the beginning, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, wow, you just had so much courage, even showing up here. It's just amazing. And also, I think the women help with like just every day, like how to navigate social situations, like. How do I go to this friend's party that has having a buffet and not lose it? (laughs) Or how to tell my husband that I have a disorder, an eating disorder, and we can't engage in all of these things that he wants to engage in regarding foods. Right. So one question I kind of, I have is there's a lot of this research now about how sugar is more addictive than we kind of thought. How does that kind of, play into 
into some of these addictions? That's one thing I'm, I'm kind of wondering about. Yeah. You know, the women definitely talk about sugar being an issue. Unfortunately, though, we, it's, it's hard to tell people to, to take something out of their diet, right? You know, because then that sets up that restricting, <laughs> purging kind of a thing. But yeah, some of the women, they, they know that that is their trigger food. And so it's, it's best if they can limit it in their environment. It's kind of how they deal with it. I know, and then the craving generally goes away. I remember a grad school class a long time ago, real long time ago, in which a professor said that regarding sugar, it, it takes about three to four days to the, for the cravings to, sub, to just completely get a, to subside, to just go away. And so I tested his theory with pop. You can tell my New York uh, <laughs> accent there. Um, and yeah, it worked. After three days of wanting pop and just withdrawing from it, it was like, hey, okay, professor. So right, you're right. So yeah, yeah so there's a lot of uh, a lot of this uh, newer research out there about how there's so much sugar in our diet that it is adding to this kind of compulsive nature of of eating. And kind of adds to that that problem, and I mean, it exacerbates exacerbates it. And also, even my thought is that some of the food that's created—I don't know if you can call it food all the time—is designed by scientists to make you want more of it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of those, the, some of these manufactured foods are—they play right into food issues. Right. There's this great film that I recommend the the groupies, we'll call them, um, watch. And it's called That Sugar Film. Have you seen it? No, I've never seen that. Oh, you need to. You need to watch it. Um, That Sugar Film. I think it's on Netflix. It's definitely on Amazon. Okay. And it talks all about the food industry and how they've, they tried to get everyone to cut out fat but they were pouring the sugar in in the meantime. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. I think we're kind of finding out like, well, maybe that wasn't the, the right thing to do. Right. And I think that yeah. plays into, if someone is feeling really depressed or anxious, turning to food like that can alleviate that feeling in the moment. And um, if you don't have any other way to get out of that feeling or you don't have the coping mechanisms or the supportive relationships in your life, then, hey, that's a quick way to do it. Mm-hmm. Go, yeah, I'm going to eat eat a bunch of uh, Taco Bell or I'm going to eat a tub of ice cream because I feel miserable right now. Yeah, right. And it's so easy to do, especially when you're in front of a TV <laughs> or another famous place is in the car, you know, where no one's watching. Yeah, it's easy to mind, mindlessly eat. So what are kind of, for 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 people out there, what are kind of, some of the signs, especially around like binge eating, I, I think a lot more people struggle with binge eating than uh, we probably know about. That's just my guess. But like, what would be kind of some of the signs of someone who is struggling with that? What might they see in themselves? Right. So they're definitely going to have this, like I said, this pattern of eating in which the eating feels very uncontrolled you know, very impulsive and it's like, it's quick, it's rapid, large amounts of food within like a two hour period. And it's usually alone, like no, you know, they don't want anyone to see them. Maybe it's in their room or maybe when it's, when everyone goes to work. Yeah. So they're having like two meals at once kind of a thing. And then they're feeling this, this guilt and, and shame afterwards. Right. Yeah, definitely. 
So like you said, like in their room or you had mentioned earlier, like in their car. Mm-hmm. So they're hi- there's something, there's a lot of shame around it. They're, they're definitely yeah. feeling like they've got to hide it or people can't see this. So they know that, okay, maybe this isn't healthy or. Right. And, and they, they're feeling, like you said earlier, out of control, emotionally dysregulated. Food is something that they feel they can control. Right. So what, what can a, if a person is struggling this, what, what can they do? Well, they definitely want to reach out. Um, they want to seek help, uh, whether it's a therapist that specializes in eating disorders. I think the important thing really is to make that first connection. And if they go to their primary care doctor and that doctor sometimes misses some of those signs, it's important to follow up and say, hey, listen, this is a real, this is a real serious issue for me. Because a lot of times the um, women that I see say like they go to their physician and the physician just says, you know, well, yeah, why don't you go on this restricting diet if you want to feel better? <laughs> kind of like the opposite of what they need to right. hear. <laughs> well, I don't think a lot of people, even doctors, when it comes to mental health issues, and this is more of a mental health issue, mm-hmm. they, they don't know what to, you know, it's like going to the to the alcoholic and saying, okay, oh, you're having problems. Well, just don't drink as much, you know? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really, doesn't necessarily help. They already kind of know, like, this isn't good. <laughs> That's why they're talking to you about it. Right. But I, I think a lot of people don't have the research. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go or even where to send their patients. I think I think that becomes a, an issue, like, uh, for a lot of doctors. I don't have, you know, who do I send uh, this person to for this, if that makes sense. I think that can happen a lot. Yeah, and it's um, it's interesting just talking to, I'm, I treat both disorders, so I'm in peer groups for both disorders. And it's interesting to hear, you know, the eating disorder professionals and how they just don't really, they don't want to touch individuals that have substance abuse. It's just too risky. And I get it. <laughs> like, I definitely right, right, get it. Yeah. And, you know, and same with substance abuse. Yeah. And, and you know, my thought is we, we really have to treat the whole person. All these things work together. And you have to tackle them all. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard for a person to kind of really recover in only parts. I, I just think it's kind of like it, we got to hit it all at the same time. Got to work on it. It's all working together and, and we got to figure it out all kind of going forward. And I think this kind of idea of like separating them out, I, I, just, I, don't, I don't see how that works. I, I don't, not long term. Yeah, I think it can yeah be, de- uh, definitely. I think you got to deal with it all. You know, if you're in a starvation kind of a phase to it, although individuals don't like to hear this, but it, you know, going to a treatment center where you can get the treatment that you need for a short period of time can be really helpful, at least to to get your your weight up because a starved body really, you know, it has a lot of the same symptoms as some presenting for alcohol withdrawal. Yeah, so it, it, these are tough. These are tough, tough issues to deal with. So, if anybody's out there, kind of struggling with any of these issues, what would you want to tell them? What would you want them to know? Well, that you're not alone. Definitely. I mean, we have such a diet culture where the media just is constantly um, bombarding our screens with the idea of perfection is the only type of beauty out there, and that's just not the case. So just making sure that, you know, you reach out to somebody, you know, whether it's on Facebook or whether it's your best friend or your significant other or, 
somebody that can support you through this because it's going to take work. You didn't just get here overnight. So it's going to take some time to get you back to where you uh, need to be to be a, a healthy person, human. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So re- once again, reach out, start that process of there's support out there. Get, get help. Don't, uh, you don't have to do this alone. It's too difficult anyway. I mean, to try and do it on your own. So, you know, reach out for help. It's, it's right? definitely, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, Adina, I, I, how can people get a hold of you if they, if they want more information about you and how can they get a hold of you? Yeah. So you can definitely go to the website, adinaslavestri.com. And then I'm on all the usual social media channels as, as well. So. Awesome. And, and I'm going to link all those in, in the show notes as well. And I'll link that film that you mentioned as well. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Oh, good. Because uh, I'm going to check that out. I think that sounds really interesting. So Adina, once again, thanks for coming back on to The Addicted Mind and sharing your wisdom and knowledge with everybody. Um, I just uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, I hope this helped. Thanks for having me on. Great. All right. You take care. Thanks. Bye. Thank you all for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. You can get all the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 42. I'll have all the links there as well. And once again, if you're enjoying The Addicted Mind, please rate and review us in iTunes. It really does help. Also, sign up for our newsletter on the website. That's great, too. You can get all the latest episodes and any new information that we have coming. So sign up for that and rate and review us in iTunes. And have a wonderful day. And I will see you next week. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.